All right, it's going to be Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 8 to 15 for a sermon I've entitled, The First Christian Martyr. Why don't you follow along as I read? Here's what it says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men who were from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly introduced or induced men to say, we've heard this man uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up all the people and the elders and the scribes and they dragged him up to him uh, and came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man speaks incessantly against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses has handed down to us. And fixing their eyes on him, all who were in the council sitting uh, saw his face like the face of an angel. You know, when it comes to the advancement of human knowledge, there has not been a more significant invention than the movable type printing press developed by German printer uh, Johannes Gutenberg. At one time, you know, if you wanted to buy a, a Bible, you had to hire a monk who would work on it for about 10 months copying it by hand. The cost of a single Bible at that time in today's currency would be the equivalent to $16,000. But after Gutenberg's invention became widely used, the price dropped to such a point that almost anyone could own a copy of the scripture. Well, it's not only Bibles but, that were produced, but other books as well. And one of the first and most popular of those books was Fox's Books of, of Martyrs. Now, Fox, John Fox was an English historian who in 1559 chronicled the deaths of Christians from the days of the apostle in the early church up until his own time. Now, it's today, persecution still continues. It's not done by the Catholic Church killing Protestants, but rather it's Muslims in the Middle East, Hindus in India, along with communist leaders in China and Vietnam and Korea. Last year, in Nigeria alone, 2,543 Christians were martyred. Now, Paul said, where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. And God's grace abounds in those lands where Christians face harsh persecution. It's in those places that the church is actually growing the fastest. And as the church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Well, today we have before us the story of Stephen, who was not only one of the first deacons to serve in the church, but more importantly, he became the first martyr of the church, laying down his life for Jesus and so providing an example for the rest of us to follow. So to encourage you to be bold in your witness to Christ, we want to begin to look at this story this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. I pray that you'd give us what we need from your word to be inspired by this man's life and death so that we can finish well as uh, also. So we pray a blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of Stephen's martyrdom starts in chapter 8, verse uh, 6, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 7. Uh, just to read the text alone takes a full five minutes, so we can't cover it all today. Instead, we're going to look at just those first verses from 8 to 15, and uh, I want you to notice several things that we have here. First of all, the character of this man, that's found in verse 8, the character of this man. Secondly, the controversy that arose, that's 9 to 10. Third, the charges leveled against him, that's 11 to 14. And finally, the countenance of his faith, or face, 
and that's verse 15. The character of this man. You know, I looked up all kinds of quotes on the nature and meaning of character, and I found a number of them that I thought were interesting. Stephen Covey, he's the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He says this, Our character is basically the composite of our habits. Trevon Edwards put it this way, Thoughts lead to our purpose. Purpose leads to action. Actions form habits. Habits decide character. And our character determines our destiny. Thomas McCauley said this, The measure of a man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. Philip Brooks, the clergyman who wrote A Little Town of Bethlehem, he reminds us that character may be manifest in great moments, but it's made in small ones. I mean, the reason that Daniel was able to stand, even at the threat of being thrown in the lion's den, was because years before he had made up his mind not to defile himself with the king's food. Not only the character of individuals, but nations matter as well. The economist Roger Babson said this, In the last analysis, our national future depends upon our national character. That is whether it's spiritually or materially minded. Charlie Chaplin said that a man's true character comes out when he's drunk. Ronald Reagan said, You can tell a lot about a fellow's character by the way he eats jelly beans. And Charles Spurgeon said, Good character is the best tombstone. Now, I don't know what was written on Stephen's tombstone after he was martyred, but I do know the Bible describes him as a man of good character. We were told in verse 5, as we saw last week, that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was a man who trusted God deeply and showed clear evidence that the Holy Spirit was directing him daily. And that's why God was using him in a mighty way, as we see in verse 8, when it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, it's important that we remember, Stephen was not an apostle. He was a deacon, chosen by the congregation to deal with just the practical matters of the church, like feeding widows. But he was also performing miracles and evidently having a great evangelistic outreach towards his countrymen. You know, it's kind of nice to know that you're making a positive impact on the lives of others. Whether it's family members, neighbors, co-workers, if you're a teacher, upon your students. But as someone said sarcastically, no good deed goes unpunished. Stephen might have been doing good through his miracles he performed and the truth that he proclaimed, but there were some who were not happy at all with what he was accomplishing. That brings us to our next section, the controversy that arose, and this is in verse 9 to 10. Now, I have to say, the world is not going to get upset if we as Christians are involved in some sort of social work. I mean, if uh, the church helps out with food drives, cleaning up highways, building hospitals, or working with the poor, that'll generally bring praise, or at least grudging approval from most people. What the unbelievers hate is not the good deeds that we do, but the good news that we proclaim. Now, we're not told specifically here that Stephen was going around preaching the gospel, though we should assume that because all Christians were and should understand that we're under an obligation to proclaim the gospel. But we are told that Stephen specifically was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus told us, uh, his disciples, that when the Spirit arrived, he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 6. Well, evidently, he was doing that because many people were coming to faith. But we were told earlier that a great number of priests were also coming to the faith. In both are in, it bothers Islamic leaders when Muslims convert to Christianity. Matter of fact, 
they're called on to put them to death as a result. But what really bothers them is when an imam becomes a Christian. You see, as the leaders of the, of the mosque, they're the ones who are supposed to keep them from converting. So it bothers them tremendously when they join others in fo- becoming followers of Jesus. Well, in verse 9, we read of the controversy which arose. It says this, Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some men from Cilicia and Asia, rose up to argue with Stephen. I have to tell you, it's not common today to see debates between Christians and Jewish apologists. Many Jewish leaders think that they're unproductive and they're just simply dangerous. And some of that comes out of the historical experience they had in the Middle Ages. Jewish rabbis were forced to participate in such debates. And from their perspective, living in a Christian country, uh, that always put them in a no-win situation. I mean, even if they won the debate, persecution would result. So whether win or lose, they always ultimately lost. Well, here we have Jews who were former slaves who had established their own synagogue in Jerusalem, and they were being uh, joined by others. And I, I heard a Jewish talk show host, I believe it was Michael Medved, he's a radio talk show host, say that the three branches of Judaism, which is Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform, agree on almost nothing. But the one thing they're united on is their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. They say it this way, we don't know who the Messiah is, but we know who he's not. He's not Jesus of Nazareth. Now, representing the Jewish view, you have a number of Jews from a couple different synagogues. Representing the Christian view, you have Stephen and the Holy Spirit, who gave him the wisdom to speak these words, and evidently he did it quite well, because look at what it says in verse 10. But they, these other opponents of his, were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10? 16 to 20 said this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you will say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you're to say. For it's not you who will speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Talking about that same type of situation. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 15. He said, Jesus promised, he said, for I will give you utterance, wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. Now, Jesus is fulfilling his promise to Stephen here. I have to tell you, I mean, nobody likes to lose an argument. So even when you have a point and you prove it, the other side seldom concedes so as to change their minds and come over to your position. As they say, he who's convinced against his will at the end of the day, holds his opinion still. Well, Stephen's debate opponents couldn't refute what he was saying, so they changed their tactics. They engaged in a smear campaign. They put out fake news with the intent of doxing Stephen. Cancel culture was going on even then. Did you read the story from a couple weeks ago about the woman that the media had dubbed the city bike Karen? A video of the event went viral. The backstory is this. She's a nurse. Her name is Sarah Comrie. She had just finished a 12-hour shift, and she went to get on one of the bikes that New York has that you can rent. And in the video, she's seen arguing with five young black teenagers uh, who said that they had the right to the bike. So she's trying to take the bike out of the rack, and they're holding it in there. Both are claiming that they've rented it. And as the argument goes back and forth, she begins yelling and asking for help. And one of the five teenagers who's recording this whole event Uh, is keeping an eye on it. But uh, she had already rented the bike, she said, and of course if it was taken from her, 
and it wasn't returned, she'd be on the hook for $1,500 to replace the bike. Finally, a guy arrived, and he said, well, why don't you just re-rack the bike, and that way it'll cancel out whoever had rented it, and they won't have to pay for it. Well, the young teenager wasn't willing to do that. Well, once it went viral on the internet, the woman was accused of racism and trying to um, uh, exercise white privilege by taking a bike from the young black man. By the way, she was six months pregnant at the time. When do you suppose in the history of the world there's been a six-month pregnant woman after working 12 hours as a nurse who decided to steal a bike from five young black men? Seems a little ridiculous on the surface. Well, many news agencies said that she was stealing the bike and they called her a thief. A number of news reporters uh, said that by yelling, she was putting these five young black men in danger. If the police had come, they might have shot first and asked questions later. So she was denounced in the press. She was suspended from her job at the hospital. Several well-known commentators called on her neighbors to harass this racist, white privileged woman at her home. She received death threats. But then her lawyer produced the receipts that proved that she, not the young man, had rented the bike. Lawyers said that they're planning on suing news agencies for harassment and defamation. Oops. The news agencies took the story and ran with it without checking to see if it was true. It fit their narrative, and that's why they went with it. Well, these debate, debate opponents of, of Stevens started to put out a narrative as well, one that they knew was false. That brings us to our next point, the charges leveled against them. This is found in verses 11 to 14. It says this, Then they secretly introduced men to say, We've heard from him, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. For years, the mainstream media pushed the narrative that Donald Trump was a stooge of Putin and that the Russians had interfered with the presidential election, and that's why Hillary Clinton lost. The FBI launched an investigation. Congressman Adam Schiff said there was enough evidence to try the president and convict him for treason. We're told that the Bob Mueller report, when it came out, would be the final nail in the coffin of the Trump presidency. Well, not only did that prove to be false, it was a dud, but a subsequent report that came out, done by special counsel John Durham, showed that the Russian collusion story was planted by the Clinton administration, or the Clinton campaign, and that the FBI knew that there was nothing to the story, but they went along with it, Anyways, violating their own pro uh, policies in the process. Now, President Trump has been impeached twice, once for asking the leader of Ukraine to investigate Hunter Biden's connection with a Ukrainian gas company, and the second time for the January 6th riot. The FBI didn't want the video footage released because they said that they had a couple hundred agents mixed in with the rioters. Huh? I wonder why they didn't try to stop the rioters. Perhaps if it was because they were egging them on. By the way, where's Ray Epps? Nobody knows. What, corrupt leaders willing to lie and deceive to advance their agenda? Shocked, shocked I am. Now, my goal is not to do a political commentary this morning. It's simply to illustrate the fact that fake news and false narratives have been a tool of the wicked in every age, including ours. Now, notice what these scoundrels were doing. They're trying to whip up the crowds, turning them against Stephen and this emerging Christian movement. The charges they leveled against them were very carefully calculated to get the crowd heated up, perhaps uh, hoping for a fiery but mostly peaceful demonstration. There were a number of evangelical churches that shut down for COVID, but they brought their people out to march in the George Floyd riots. 
Look at what this one says. It says, we've heard him say, uh, speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Do you remember? That's what Jezebel did, isn't it? She used the same tactic against Naboth when he refused to sell his property to King Ahab who wanted it for a garden. When Naboth said no, Ahab went home, laid on his bed, turned his face to the wall, and pouted. What's wrong, my little man? asked Jezebel. I wanted Naboth's field and he won't sell it to me. Whined Ahab. No, no, dry those tears and turn that frown upside down. Mama, we'll get that field for you. And she did. She sent messengers to the elders of Naboth's hometown, telling him to throw a feast, invite Naboth, set him at the front, and in the middle of the third course, accuse him of blaspheming God and speaking against the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. They were low-level bureaucrats, so they did just what the queen ordered. Well, these men not only stirred up the people, they got the elders and the scribes involved who came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Now, reflecting on the political corruption in his own day, Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 4.1. He said, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which are being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. But on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no cons, no one to comfort them. Look what it says in verse 13 to 14. So they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and against the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses has handed down. Now, there's some truth in what they say, but they twist it into a pretzel of lies. Was Stephen speaking against the law in the holy place? No. What he was probably telling him was that the sacrifices done in the temple were no longer necessary because Jesus came as the Lamb of God to be the true sacrifice who would take away the sins of those who trusted him. By the way, for you right now, if you have not trusted in Jesus as the payment for your sins, you will pay for all your own sins for all eternity. That's the good news that we preach. Not that you can reform yourself and achieve a level that God says, okay, now I'll accept you. But as a free gift, God grants forgiveness to those who humble themselves, admit their sinners, and receive God's remedy, which is Christ's death on the cross, as the payment for your sins. And the law, did Jesus abolish the law and annul its commandments? Well, no. He himself said this. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them to others shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. The Mosaic law was a temporary arrangement between God and the nation of Israel, which was given to them to show them the great need for a savior. That it was temporary was proved by the fact that the prophets in the Old Testament promised a future day when God would make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says this in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. I will put my laws within them in their heart and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them, even to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. You know, they say on the internet, once it's on the internet, it's there forever. You can never get rid of it. 
It's never forgotten. But God says that he purposely forgets our sins when we trust in Christ. Well, Israel as a nation has not entered into this new covenant, but we in the church, both Jews and Gentiles, have entered it by faith in Israel's Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, just the fact that he was from Nazareth made a lot of people prejudiced against Jesus. You can see this, the contempt dripping from their lips when they say this. They say, we've heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs of Moses that Moses has handed down. By the way, isn't that what they accused Jesus of as well? That he said he was going to destroy the temple? He didn't say that. After he had cleansed the temple, the religious leaders came to confront him, demanding to know what right do you have to do these things? And Jesus said this, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. The Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. But you know, Jesus did say that the temple was going to be destroyed, didn't he? Not by him, but by the Romans. Do you remember his words to his disciples when they were pointing out the impressive stones on the temple? He said this, and you, he said to him, do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting at the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Did Jesus alter the customs of Moses that he handed down? Actually, yeah, he did. As Christians, we're allowed to eat pork and shellfish. We aren't required to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem several times a year. I mean, if you want to wear fabrics with uh, two or more types of fiber, you're allowed to do so. Christians are under the new covenant. Jesus told us that you cannot pour old wine into new wine, or new wine into old wineskins. When Christianity came, the old wineskin of Judaism was set aside. And so the moral law remains the same in Christianity that it did in Judaism, but the ceremonial law and the civil law to Israel, we don't have to keep that. And neither do Jewish believers who are in the church today. By the way, this shift in redemptive history from the old covenant to the new was one that many of Jesus' Jewish followers really struggled to understand and even to accept. The idea that the customs and the rituals that they had had and that their ancestors had practiced for 1,500 years was now passe, took some time for them to grasp and accept as Jewish believers. Now, I'm sure that much of the debate and discussion between Stephen and his opponents had to do with this, but they weren't willing listeners simply needing more information and further explanation on how it worked out. I have to tell you as a pastor over the years, I've had a number of times where people come to me they say, I don't agree with what you're teaching. Or usually they go to other people and tell them they don't agree with what I'm teaching. When I talk to them, I always ask them, I say, well, why don't we sit down and go through the scripture and I'll show you where I'm getting this from. The response over all that time has always been the same. Nope, I know what I believe and I'm not going to change my mind, which they could have added even if you show me from the word of God. That brings us to our last point, though, the countenance on his face. This is verse 15. You know, there's a well-known Jewish blessing given at the synagogues, it comes from Numbers 6, 24 to 26. It says this, The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Well, a person's countenance is their facial expression. And when Moses is asking God to lift up his countenance on the people, he's asking them to smile down on them with favor and with blessing. And that's what you and I need, isn't it? 
We need the favor of God, or as we more commonly call it, the grace of God. We need the grace of God to forgive us. Sometimes we need the grace of God to forgive others. We need the grace of God to empower us, to help us to live the Christian life. We need the grace of God to strengthen us so we can endure. The grace to stand, even in the face of our impending martyrdom, like Stephen. And I have to say, I doubt that Stephen got up that morning and thought to himself, today's my last day on earth. By this afternoon, I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. But you know, that might be true of any one of us. You might wake up tomorrow and by the end of the day, be in eternity. None of us knows how many days we have left. But as we get older and older, those days become fewer and fewer. Don't waste them on unimportant things. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Well, here the face that shines is not God's, but Stephen's. Look what it says in verse 15. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Pretty little angel eyes, pretty little angel eyes, pretty little angel, pretty little angel, pretty little angel eyes. Well, Stephen didn't have angel eyes, nor did he have Betty Davis eyes. I put that in there for you, Tim. <laughs> I don't think his face looked like this the day before. And this isn't a remark on how good looking he was. Rather, it's more along the lines of Moses. You remember when he went up to the mountain and he would talk to God when he come back, it says his face would glow, it would shine, and he would put a veil over it to cover it because it was so bright. Well, they saw Stephen like this because the Holy Spirit was upon him powerfully. And though they saw his face shining, by the time he's done giving his testimony and his defense, they were so angry, so filled with hatred, so murderous that they rushed upon him, covering their ears, and stoned him to death. We're going to see all that next week. Well, now, I began by mentioning that Stephen was the first martyr listed in Fox's Book of Martyrs. He was the first, but he certainly wasn't the last, because year after year, thousands are being added to that roster. As Paul said, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. And folks, I don't know when open persecution is going to come to America, but it's already heading that way quickly. Some of you might actually be called on to be martyrs. But even if that doesn't happen to any of us, isn't there a sense in which we're all called to lay down our life for Christ every day? I mean, didn't Jesus say, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever wishes to Save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. I only have one point of application. Lose your life for Christ so that you can save it for all eternity. I had uh, praying for somebody just yesterday. Joel and I were in the morning. Guy had cancer. I knew it was terminal, didn't have long to live. I thought, well, I'm going to send him a card and Somebody I used to pastor. Not sure whether he was a believer or not. But then later in that day, Joel texted me and said, Ah, he just died. You don't know when you're going to die. But because of what I just told you, you know what you need to do to be ready to die. You have to turn from your sins, acknowledge that you've violated God's commandments and dishonored them by the way you live. 
Trust in the death of Jesus as the payment for your sin. And he will grant you eternal life and joy that will last forever. Not because we're good, but because he's good. May God give you the grace to believe the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Um, the Bible teaches that you're the one who grants faith, but everyone's commanded to trust in Jesus, turn from our sins. I pray for each one here, Lord. There's some here who know they're not Christians. There's some here, Lord, who may not be Christians and don't know it. And there's some here, Lord, who do know that they are believers who've trusted in Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd work in all of our hearts, that you'd confirm faith in us so that we would trust in Jesus and find the eternal life that you've provided as a gift for anyone who would merely believe. So bless us now. Give grace. For we ask in Jesus' name.